Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Hello, and welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I have Lindsay Baker here with me. Lindsay is a CEO at the International Living Future Institute, and we're going to talk about Lindsay's rather awesome background, I might say, including her time building the smart building startup Comfy, uh, all the way to getting acquired by Siemens. And then, of course, we're going to dig into what living buildings are, where technology comes into play with living buildings, and the role of certifications at the intersection of climate, healthy buildings, and technology. So, Lindsay, welcome. And can we start by um, asking you how smart and sustainable is your home? <laughs> oh, man. Well, so I have to say, this is a funny one. In part, I don't know if any of your listeners are like me, but I have a husband who is not a particular fan of sensors and technology in his home <laughs> because he is a little concerned about, like, you know, surveillance and things. So my our home is not that smart. I have gotten away with a few sensors. I've got an air quality sensor. I, I we have an aware in our house, um, and I do you know there's lots of little you know old school mercury filled thermometers in different places in the house so that I can monitor the temperature. But it's actually pretty um, pretty low tech here. Uh, I also live in a 1969 glass box. Uh, it's a high rise. So I, you know there's this interesting dynamic with the choices that we make in our homes. I, I We live in a nice, dense neighborhood where I can walk everywhere. And because we live in a, an apartment building, I think we're using fewer resources than we would if we lived in you know, kind of a single family home with a big yard or something. So all told, I think we do pretty well, but the irony has not been lost on me that um, we have like horrible heat gain problems and right. a lot of glare and all sorts of things that uh, the building scientist in me wasn't really thinking about when I saw the sort of beautiful view out of these windows and we decided to buy this place. So, you know, pros and cons. But generally speaking, I'm, I, I think we found the right balance for us. Um, and uh, I don't, you know, I don't have too much guilt about it. I think we all do as well as we can on the sustainability side. But yeah, on the smart side, um, I, there is no machine that I can talk to that can put music on or otherwise, you know, um, <laughs> tell me, make a phone call or anything like that. So uh, I don't know. I think maybe that is my style as well. I don't, I'm not sure I'm, I'm totally ready for all of that technology yet, but that's me. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. I, I get uh, um, naturally vendors like to send me products, smart buildings products. And I have one of the one of those vendors is an occupancy counter, a people counter. And I've been thinking about installing it, but I'm also like, you know, how much am I violating my wife's privacy and my own privacy? <laughs> like, 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 really, do I need to count people in my living room? Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I struggle with this that same good, thing. Though. Yeah. yeah, you gotta be. I think we have to be kind of like honest um, early adopters here and tell right. people like. No, sorry, my husband's not gonna be comfortable with with that one. Like, I I always worry about. The, I'm I'm so interested in, in acoustic sensors. I've always wanted there to be kind of more of a a market for and like use cases for knowing how much sound is in a space. But I now oh, yeah. understand that if anyone were like, they think it's it's definitely just the government listening to, to your conversations. Like, that's definitely how everyone understands, or your boss you know, or your company for some other kind of nefarious or security exactly. related thing. So I, yeah, I think I've, I've kind of learned, I may have to give up on my like nerdy desire for, for that type of sensing anytime soon, because people are just too squeamish about it. But that is, you know, of course, an important aspect of building controls, in my opinion, is the question of the human and how what the, what the actual you know, human behavior thinks about all this stuff. So, you know, um, I, I believe in it. I think that's an important constraint. Totally. So let's, let's talk about your awesome background. Uh, can you just take us through it? How'd you get here? How'd you get into the industry and maybe give us a little, uh, 
timeline on on from from there to here? Yeah. So I'm an environmentalist by background. That's how I got into working on buildings. Um, I grew up in Atlanta. I got sort of concerned about climate change and I don't know, the heat island effect, all these things, pollution when I was growing up. And uh, I learned about buildings pretty early on when I was actually in high school and got interested in the idea of working on green buildings when it was just kind of starting to be a concept um, in the industry. I was really lucky kind of that I nerded out on something pretty young that ended up being this growing field. My parents were like, there's no way you could get a job working on green buildings. So you're going to have to work on this, you know, like come up with some backup plans. But it just happened to be when the U.S. Green Building Council was getting started. So I ended up there right out of college. And, um, you know, I guess I should say I went to college at Oberlin College, which has a you know, super, super green building that also had a lot of intelligence in it. I started getting exposure um, pretty early to this question of how buildings operate and and the importance of operation in optimizing sustainability. Um, so I, I came out to California to do a building science master's at UC Berkeley, which is at the Center for the Built Environment. Probably some of your listeners will know. Um, really focuses on sort of that, just you know, some of the intersections of thermal comfort, lighting. Um, but a lot of human behavior related stuff, a lot of things around sort of um, controls, for example, like the, you know, um, what kinds of controls work, um, what do people intuitively understand or not. Um, so I was there for a little bit, ended up at Google in their real estate group. Um, and it was sort of because of Google that I got connected to a couple of guys who built a, a, the prototype of what became Comfy, the software um, at UC Berkeley. They were computer science um, PhDs there. Um, and yeah, some, you know, some like Berkeley slash Google connections, um, they were looking to start the company and, um, needed people, you know, needed somebody who knew something about, you know, the building industry and such. So I joined, um, uh, at the very beginning of the company before it got any funding or anything, which in retrospect was a crazy move. Uh, it was definitely, <laughs> company had a lot of like classic Silicon Valley, style things about it um i know some smart buildings companies kind of start a little bit maybe more from the industry you know like somebody builds a tool and then they decide the other people should have access to that tool or whatever Mm -hmm. we started with like a bunch of young people uh pitching the you know classic silicon valley venture capitalists getting some money and just going for the whole wild ride and if you've ever watched that show silicon valley like it was legitimately like that enough that I watched the show just for therapy. Like (laughs) (laughs) it was a lot, it was a lot. Um, But, you know, I was an immediate fan of comfy Um, for those that don't know. I think it's kind of worth at least just explaining the way that it came out anyway, what it was in its original state was an app that you had on your phone or your desktop that allowed you to, um, it was connected to the building management system through BACnet, and it would allow occupants to have a very carefully curated bit of control over the temperature of their specific workspace. So we were using whatever zones were already in a building that were had been designated by the BMS, but, you know, kind of giving people a little sandbox. So we talked about it as like a nest thermostat, but for commercial buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really helpful from it, from the perspective of comfort it helped people with comfort for sure because it had a machine learning algorithm that would learn to keep the spaces cooler or warmer depending on the preferences of the folks who sat in those spaces. Um, but also an energy perspective. It would, when it didn't see any feedback in a particular zone, it would relax the dead band and allow mm-hmm. the space to float more, um, you know, between a wider uh, sort of range of temperatures. So it was a, it was a really lovely way of sort of tuning you know, commercial HVAC to the actual demand of the people and a very, you know, very limited. They couldn't just say, oh, I want it to be 60 degrees in here all the time and just blast the air conditioning. It was, you know, within the sort of bounds. Anyway, it was, so I loved it immediately because I found it to be a really useful sort of balance of occupant control and, um, you know, automation that could allow us to tune buildings. Of course, the, the, it was a lot easier said than done, as it turned out. Um, and, you know, we we had a lot of success. We did manage to get it into a bunch of buildings. We had 
a lot of great clients and they still do. Um, but as we built out, I think that that specific technology of sort of the occupant control of thermal comfort, um, we, we added on more features that were sort of more related to the broader occupant experience for folks in buildings. And those were just kind of easier to sell people on and easier mm-hmm. to kind of manage either the, you know, the BMS interconnections were challenging, uh, just, you know, it was kind of more, I mean, that's one of the things you learn with in a startup world and it's, it is built for is like to just see how something works in, in reality. And I think it was a little bit more expensive than we were hoping it would be to actually yeah. integrate it in, you know, through a lot of building management systems. And we just ran into lots of buildings for, it looked for a while like we would have, you know, good interoperability yeah. and then something would happen and we would be back to square one and, and you know, clients would get frustrated and all that. So it was, I think we proved that it was possible, but then the company, yeah, I guess long story short, we, we, uh, we, we sold to Siemens, as you mentioned. <laughs> so and now they still exist and they kind of do a broader set of workforce, um, not workforce, workplace uh, optimization things. So, yeah, so that was, I guess, yeah, sorry, that was the very long version of the story of Comfy, which we can talk more about. But I do like to make sure people understand, like, why would someone go from working on sustainability and buildings into, like, working in Silicon Valley? And that's why that happened. Um, and well, this then, is, yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you on this podcast. <laughs> you know, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago when I first reached out and I was like, well, I, I love that you know combination of your experience and your foray into smart buildings it's so cool so yeah continue yeah. you have a couple yeah, of yeah. other so, yeah so so i guess that is i mean <laughs> it's it's a long story but it really helps to explain why i ended up next at, as the head of sustainability at WeWork. um and that is because we work uh was doing really interesting things around software and data for real estate um, they cared a lot about sustainability, but they didn't really want to take the approach with sustainability that a lot of people had pitched them on of like, I will come and make sure that all of your WeWorks get lead certified. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's cool, but let's see if we can do something really interesting with sort of the data and infrastructure of WeWork and really change the nature of real estate and sort of you know, try out some of these things. WeWork was a client of Comfy and they were really into it because, you know, it was this sort of, you know, tech-infused real estate kind of play. Um, the famous story that I can now sort of share is that they tried to acquire Comfy and and it was, you know, WeWork, if you know about how they tried to acquire companies for a while, we, did, we didn't take the bait. Uh, and so uh, that's where the relationship kind of started. So I ended up there and was there for about a year and a half building a really cool sustainability program. I was super proud of really amazing people. But then unfortunately, when WeWork collapsed in the at the end of 2019, uh, we were all pretty much, well, almost all let go um, as a part of the big layoffs that happened. So I got out, I went on a spirit quest as the pandemic started uh, and, you know, thought about a bunch of things, thought about what I wanted to do in my career. And really came back to the importance for me of, um, of being an environmentalist in the building industry. That we, you know, the building industry is a critical industry to decarbonize, a critical industry for us to sort of reimagine and execute the a, a better uh, future in. And it, like lots of industries, uh, needs people who are fully engaged and kind of understand how it works in order to shift it. And um, I love the people in the building industry that are trying to change it. I think they're all really fascinating folks. And, you know, they're just kind of my community that I started out in. So, um, and the opportunity to join the International Living Future Institute came up during the, all of these um, wanderings I was doing. And I was fortunate to be able to join as the CEO, the organization's about 10 years old. So it was kind of an opportunity to join this organization that I knew of as being kind of the vanguard in some ways of the green building community. Um, and um, yeah, I think frankly, I was kind of done with the Silicon Valley world. We work plus comfy. I was feeling a little bit like I wanted to try a different sort of angle on transforming things. But I think when it comes down to it, my career has really been this series of different 
experiments on the market levers that can really shift the building industry in a big way. I've always been interested in that question. Like, what can we find that might disproportionately impact, you know, and and really like um, shift practice? And, you know, LEED was that for sure um, when I was working on that. The technology angle, I think, does and should be a pretty, you know, can, can be a major lever and does manage to do that sometimes. WeWork was kind of that type of thing for sure. Um, and yeah, now I get to do that work from a very sort of different angle of, of uh, the Living Future Institute, which has lots of different ways that it's trying to affect change, but definitely that mission to really fundamentally restructure a lot of things about how we build towards, you know, better future. Awesome. Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. I did want to circle back on two things. One is your podcast. I'd love for you to give a shout out about that. Uh, we'll definitely <laughs> put the link to it in the show notes, but can you talk about that for just a sec? Yeah, sure. Well, so during my spirit quest times and also at the beginning of the pandemic, I started a podcast in part um, because, you know, like when you do, when you don't get to see other human beings, <laughs> it seemed like a yeah. nice way <laughs> to keep things going. Um, uh, I started it with my my co-host, uh, Kira Gould, um, who's a, an author and communications person in the green building world. Um, it's called Design the Future. And we interview women who are leading um, in various ways in the world of sustainable buildings. Um, so it's planners and architects and engineers. Um, we have... Uh, oh, all sorts of folks doing different things, nonprofit leaders, et cetera. And it's across a lot of broad sort of categories. I'd say like if, if you're more of a smart buildings person, there's definitely some folks who are doing really interesting technology work. We just had Davida Herzl from Aklama on. I guess they're not really as smart buildings anymore as they first started out to be, but nonetheless, like cool tech that people should know about. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's our podcast. If you want to check it out, um, design the future uh, podcast.com is how you find us and we post you know like every couple of weeks or something just conversations with badass women awesome um i did want to hit comfy again real quick because i have a, a question for you it might be a little bit drawn out i kind of want to summarize what you said around the different use cases that you guys you know ended up building so you started with this probably very difficult from an integration standpoint and cybersecurity standpoint um, <laughs> use case, which was we're going to create a mobile app and give that, put that in the hands of the occupant that also sits on, you know, has a device, sits on the network, integrates with the HVAC control system. Um, and then it, what it sounds like what happened was you realized like kind of like, oh shit, that's a little bit more difficult, you know, long time to value, kind of expensive. Um, which a lot of people that are listening to this are probably like, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> and then it sounds like you said, okay, well, we have an app, right? What What are the other ways that we can provide value to tenants? Um, and yeah. now I think, so that was, that ended in, or you stopped working there in 2018. So it's been like five years since that, um, you know, acquisition by Siemens. And now today, I don't know how much you pay attention to this. There are probably 25 applications that are like looking at this and they started in the opposite direction. So they said, okay, let's give them a mobile app and now what can we do? And then you see them go in the opposite direction, which is eventually they might realize, oh, maybe we can start to connect into the BS, right? Um, <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you just have any thoughts on like um, in general, that market category, that category of products and like what it is today versus what it was back then when you guys were kind of the pioneer for that occupant application, occupant engagement application category. Yeah. Well, it's nice to be thought of as a pioneer. I think that's super cool. And I guess I will say, I think one of the things that I take away from that or why I think we were maybe a pioneer is that we, we had a particular diversity on our team that I think is really helpful for smart building technology companies, that we had um, folks who knew buildings and building systems pretty well, like very, very well, um, you know, in, in our early um, team sort of DNA. And we had really world-class 
computer scientists um, who knew how to build machine learning algorithms to a pretty ridiculous degree. So I think one of the things this is going to sound a little bit pretentious to say, but my colleagues on the computer science side of, of Comfy were some of the best computer scientists in the world. They, they were really like, these are people who were building Facebook before, um, you know, and people who were, who have many, many degrees in these things. So it, it wasn't like, let's build an app that would be cool. And it was very much like, I just felt incredibly lucky that a few super well-trained, brilliant computer scientists wanted to work on this issue of HVAC in buildings. I was just like, all right, we got to keep these guys around as long as we possibly can, see what kind of interesting stuff we can build. Um, I don't know if any of them are still with us. I think they've probably moved on to different potentially easier uh, <laughs> technology problems or you know, machine learning applications and things. But it was a moment in time where where we could do something really difficult that way. And um, you know, I think we all kind of knew it was really challenging too. That's another thing worth saying is that um, the nice thing about Silicon Valley is that we never could have even gotten comfy off the ground if it weren't for venture capital sort of giving us the chance to have a few years of runway to like fail and try again and sort of work out all, all the gnarliness of like the early learning curve. Um, and, and so I hope we have more precedent for that, more and more companies that are doing something that, you know, for your listeners, it's going to sound crazy. And then you just, just give them a second, just give them a second because somebody else is going to give them a hundred million dollars to figure out whether it is possible to do that thing. And I think we as a you know smart buildings community need to kind of just hold our breath and see what happens. And if, if we can overcome some of those barriers, in the case of Comfy, yeah, it was a little hard to get over all of the barriers and it was ambitious. But I, I just want to say, like, I think I think that these folks deserve the opportunity to try. And I feel really thankful that we had the opportunity to try. Um, I, I am loving the fact that there is more buy-in or more sort of traction for occupant facing technologies mm -hmm. in for buildings. I think that's um, really exciting um, and um, really necessary. I think that that yeah. is the art, you know, for these kinds of technology companies is to figure out, I mean, we were just always talking about it as a sandbox. Like you get to pick the sandbox of how much access they have or how much they can control or when they can control things or which buttons you want to enable or disable but um buildings are fundamentally there to provide shelter for us they are there for the occupants that's why they exist and so for us to sort of imply that they don't really need to be involved at all in anything about the way the building runs it's, it's just it's just uh probably wrong in the long run <laughs> it's certainly a shame probably. to have that attitude so i'm i'm liking watching it happen but um but yeah, it, it can be hard to go in the direction of like building a sort of a consumer facing app and then trying to integrate into BMS systems afterwards. I think we were we were fortunate that we kind of tried the hardest thing first, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, oh, and by the way, so you said RDM still around. I know at least uh, Steven is still around. Give a shout out to Steven. He's, he's a member of the Nexus Pro community. And I see him on Zoom every now and then, but he, he's, he's still around. Best. Hello, Steven. All right, good. Yes. Hello, Steven. I mean, really like Steve's probably like, yeah, he, he doesn't like to talk about it too much, but was in fact an intern for Mark Zuckerberg when Facebook was just starting. Fun fact. Uh, and, you know, yeah, is is an amazing, an amazing person and engineer in every way. So, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm glad to hear he's still like, I think, and I think that the other um, two gentlemen that like put in a lot of work, Abe and Andrew, on the sort of initial um, comfy sort of backbone um, are still really doing things that they discovered that um, as sort of problems and opportunities, because um, all three of them were, you know, and are, I think, computer scientists who are really driven to to solve big problems, you know, um, climate problems, et cetera. So it's it's um it's great when you can find an opportunity for folks like that who have such high skill levels to kind of plug into climate solutions in some way. So yeah, I felt really lucky to to get to be there. Totally. So one question on WeWork before we get into living buildings. So 
you mentioned kind of a lot of what you were doing is kind of like, maybe this is my words summarizing what you said. I don't know if you said this exactly, but like kind of like super forward looking when it comes to technology. I'm wondering if there's anything and you look back on that time that you think was a good idea that hasn't quite made it into the actual industry practice yet. Like what can we learn from the, you know, the big ideas that you guys had while you were there? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Okay. I guess there are a few that I was really excited about. Um, one of which I would say that has some smart buildings implications to it, for, especially around sensors, is that we were starting to figure out how to provide um, outdoor work environments. That um, So it gives a lot of WeWorks will have you know, a patio or a, a rooftop or something like that that people can work in. And it actually is pretty expensive to to you know fit out a, a roof or some kind of outdoor space, um, and people don't oftentimes like to work outside because it's loud or because there it's too much glare on your screen or whatever. Um, but then the pandemic hit, and we all realized how great it is to actually be able to program your outdoor space. And I think for real estate providers that have access to some outdoor space it made those buildings a lot more valuable for folks that wanted to be able to have a meeting outside or something like that. How, so we were working on these ideas around how to, how to monitor and really achieve a better level of environmental quality for an outdoor workspace, uh, such that you could actually imagine people working, um, you know, in, mm -hmm. in an outdoor space for a long period of time, good Wi-Fi, good glare control, all of those kinds of things. So I think that kind of stuff still really, you know, it's it's the demand for it is still going up because of just our different approaches to um, commercial office space now, um, and you know, in the in the face of probably continued, um, you know, virus issues, et cetera. But also, just I think a really beautiful thing to think about when we're kind of thinking about the future of work and future cities and why do people want to come into a commercial office anymore anyway. Um, the idea that, you know, you may not have access to a lovely patio where you could sit outside and feel the, you know, breeze on your face and enjoy being next to a little whatever edible plant garden or something like that's all that's all really valuable and might be a draw for for folks trying to get people to come back into the office. So I loved that. Um, oh, man, but there are more mundane ones. I mean, we really were just trying to figure out how to use technology to kind of tune the spaces more dynamically. I mean, that's still, I think, kind of the, for me, feels, um, I don't know, like a like the medium-term holy grail here, that, like, wouldn't it be great if all of the spaces that we've built, all of these buildings in downtown areas especially that are supposed to be for working, they use they 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 had the capacity to provide the kind of environments that each of us wanted and they could sort of dynamically control themselves to that no more and no less no more resources needed for that than than uh, than we need to and then the added aspect of this that i get excited about is the idea that what if a building the more it was able to do that the more it was able to do a really good job of providing a great work environment for people the more valued it would be in the real estate market. And that's like a total disconnect still, the sort of question of how do you get um, those, how these buildings, you know, to actually like, how do you get that data to sort of bubble up to the level of an asset valuation? Um, but the more we have, you know, sort of ESG metrics coming into play, the more the smart building stacks kind of evolve. I think we'll get to that point where someone could literally walk into a building when they're trying to decide where they're going to put their office and see or, you know, get on their phone. Like, people really love this building. People really love the light in the building. People really love, you know, whatever, the cafe next door. But, like, that stuff, like, there there would be a way to kind of bubble up that data such that that building gets to be charging a little bit more rent for doing a really good job at, mm -hmm. like, providing a nice workplace for people. Um, so we were kind of hoping to get there and yeah, I hope someone does. Totally. I love that answer though. Let's, I think that's a good segue into living buildings. So maybe just start with why after your spirit quest, which I think maybe we could record a whole second podcast, maybe a different genre on what you discovered during your <laughs> spirit quest. Um, 
maybe we'll, we'll get there at the end if we have time. Um, totally. But maybe just talk about kind of why why you decided this was the next stop on the, on the journey, the Lindsay journey. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it was in part when I left WeWork, uh, I was getting a lot of people reaching out about chief sustainability officer jobs in like manufacturing or uh, consumer products or other things like that, because there aren't a lot of people who are qualified for those roles. Um it's kind of a new field. Um, and I started thinking like, oh, okay, well, sure, I could help some other industry. But um, just kept coming back to how much I love working with buildings. I like, I like engineers and architects a lot. I like this sort of this continuous tension that we have around how to, you know, make people happy and comfortable without, um, you know, without chaos ensuing. I don't know. That um, I I just love I love working with folks in the building industry. So that was kind of the first decision for me was that I wanted to be in the building industry. But it was also this time, you know, in the pandemic when you're kind of like I was, first of all, very much feeling the reality of um, climate change. I mean, we had some bad wildfires in California um, towards the beginning of the pandemic that were really pretty devastating. Um, and also, you know, just kind of opened a lot of people's eyes, eyes to the importance of air quality, et cetera. So I think it just, you know, I, it just ha- it feels like home to me to work at the intersection of climate and buildings and um, and to sort of figure out what levers we can use to change that. Um, yeah, you know, so then I had this choice, like the, the headhunters for heads of ESG in a real estate company, you know, like focus on one particular portfolio and try to really grain it. And I thought about a few of those. I think I, I think if the right one had come along, I might have done it. But at that point, unfortunately, and, and this was something I had been starting to feel, at, you know, when worry about with WeWork, companies were really just doing it because they were legally required to. And I, and I just didn't have the patience for it at the time. I wanted to, to be with the people who really believed like, no, this is the right thing to do. Uh, we're doing this for our grandchildren. We're doing this for our children, you know, like, um, and not because it was becoming sort of like, oh, this is just what we do now. We hire a head of ESG, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so you kind of being with my people, I guess, was the last aspect of that decision. And I just wanted to kind of be surrounded by the folks who really, who really fundamentally are, are staring this problem in the face and want to work for the rest of their lives on trying to do as much as we can you know, to provide a good future for our kids. And that's just, I absolutely get that in working at the Institute. Um, now it's a, it's a really wonderful group of people who are, who are really dedicated to that. And yeah, I, I, I don't miss Silicon Valley at all in that way. <laughs> Not to say that there's no one in Silicon Valley who, you know, who approaches it that way, but, you know, being in the nonprofit world, you kind of know we're all here for the, <laughs> we're all here for the planet for sure. Love it. Okay, so maybe for people that haven't heard of the Institute or living buildings in general, can you just talk about what they are and sort of what the Institute does kind of surrounding this concept of living buildings? Yeah, sure. So uh, International Living Future Institute, we're about a a 12-year-old nonprofit, um, started off in the Pacific Northwest, um, really working on um, this idea of the de- definition of, of a living building. We, we created this concept called the Living Building Challenge, which is a certification program, but more so it's kind of a, we say it's a philosophy, it's an advocacy tool, and it defines what it would look like if a building were truly positive in its impacts in, in the environmental realm, in the health realm, and in the social realm. So it started off, I think, kind of as a thought experiment to say, could buildings actually give back more positive to the world than they take away uh, in these three different areas? Uh, So we have a certification program that we run that kind of structurally looks a lot like LEED in the sense that you kind of, you know, you register for it and then we give you a bunch of resources and then you can certify and get the plaque on your building. Um, but it's very different from lead in a bunch of ways, including the fact that you, we, you, we have a set of imperatives. It's not, so you don't get to pick and choose all the different things that you do. You got to do all the things pretty much. Um, and it really is defining, um, you know, what would it look like if your building were, 
regenerative. So you have to you have to produce more energy than you consume. You have to clean all of your own wastewater. There's all of these things that are really um, pretty challenging. So not a lot of buildings have achieved it. And that's not really the point. We don't necessarily uh, mind that it's a really hard thing to do. We have that as sort of the anchor of our programs as an institute. And our larger work is to inspire folks in the building industry and to provide tools for them to really pursue ambitious changes in their practices, in their products, in their buildings, as best they can, as fast as they can um, towards these positive outcomes. So we have a membership community that folks can join. We have educational programs. We also label products and we have our declare label that's a transparency label for building materials that's primarily around health to um, expose the question of whether these different uh, building materials are um, contain any hazardous chemicals that are known to be bad for human health. So th that kind of thing. Um, so so it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's definitely an ecosystem strategy. We work across, you know, building projects, uh, products to people, designing it out into the industry, and then also with organizations, we have our, our just label, which is sort of a transparency label for for firms around their social impact work. So, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's great. It's a community of forty people. We're um, you know all over the country, just sort of working on these different. Again, it's the levers for change. It's just sort of what is what do we need to create in our market to enable people to act fast and act in line with, you know, with their values for, for all of these different, the whole world, I guess, of, of, uh, of sustainability and, and social impact in buildings. Awesome. And before we hit record, we talked about how your world and the smart buildings world, they might be two separate communities. There might be a little bit of overlap. Can you talk about how from this context inside the Institute, how you think about smart building technology and then that sort of whole ecosystem that I guess is kind of where Nexus plays. Nexus kind of is in the middle a little bit, but mm -hmm. how do you think about technology as it relates to creating a living building? Yeah. I mean, actually maybe it goes back to like my, my story about my house in the sense that like, I, I think I can actually pull off a pretty sustainable um, without a lot of technologies, but there are some technologies that we need. I think living buildings, they typically do have some pretty cool technologies in them. Um, dynamic facades and, you know, lots of sensing and lots of sort of interesting um, combinations of like manual and digital systems to optimize the buildings as well as you possibly can. The the thing I like about it, and it was actually wonderful what someone in a living building that I was touring recently said that what they like most is that they think that um, li their living building is kind of equally deploying ancient technology and super, super modern technology. Huh. <laughs> and some of the ancient technology is like thermal mass, like berming into the side of a hill in order to, you know, yeah. achieve, uh, right, like better temperature um yeah um equilibrium so i won't go into the definition of the thermal mass sorry but you know that so like that kind of stuff but then they also have um interlock sensors on their operable windows for the hvac so that if they decide to open their windows the hvac turns off and it's a you know not very commonly used uh, technology mm -hmm. that is really helpful for optimizing a building um so it's it's that kind of stuff. So there's there's a lot of you know intelligent lighting is a really um, frequently used uh, technology in living buildings. So so that's how I like to think about it. Is that you know across the whole sort of um, community of folks working on living buildings, they approach the question of how to get to sort of net positive energy or net positive water in different ways, and some of them use kind of you know, um, pretty simple methods that are a bit more low tech. Um, and some of them really get pretty tricked out and use really amazing technologies that are new. And I think because we're more kind of goal oriented around what it is that we're trying to do, net positive in particular, um, 
it's become a, a cool learning community for people learning how to, you know, how they might pull that off. I mean, also stuff that I'm sure your community doesn't really think about. Also, the, the kinds of technologies that come up in living buildings can be pretty hilarious and great. Like one of the one of the newer ones um, that is still going through certification, the headquarters of PAE Engineers in Portland, Oregon. They have a technology that separates. So from the urinals, they've got a the pee water goes into a essentially a a system that allows them to harvest all the nutrients out of the pee, and then take that those nutrients um, in crystallized form to local farms to help with fertilization <laughs> of uh, of the plant. Of, yeah, of like. Uh, yeah, so like it's a it's like this whole hilarious and amazing technology system that they have in their basement that's harvesting a resource out of the building that can be used to help with you know like uh, agriculture. So like that kind of stuff, like you wouldn't really get people thinking about that kind of technology unless you were really trying to pull off totally. kind of some high performance in many ways. So that's uh. Yeah, I love that about it. It's it could get real, um, it can get real wild. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I thought you were gonna take that in like a more traditional sort of like a lot more boring, <laughs> to be frank, uh, <laughs> direction, which would be like you said about the WeWork project, which is like tailoring the building systems to like you know the humans, which I feel like is probably part of it. But I didn't expect that whole other part talking about separating urine from water and things like that so yeah because yeah. It get, i mean it, yeah like i think the reason i like that one so much is because it, it it's really people who are managing a building asking themselves the question what do we have here that might be of use to the to the community around us that we could somehow figure out a way to like have a positive impact around totally. uh so so yeah so that's the mindset that people bring to living buildings it's like we genuinely want to do good also, we have a building. How's this going to work? How are we going to do that? And it happens all the way from like, what wood are you procuring for the structure of your building? And how is that contributing to, you know, indigenous land ownership to like this kind of stuff with pee? <laughs> it's really, it's totally. really pretty fun. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of the stuff that we've been working on for years has become more mainstream. We were really early on in electrification, decarbonization work. Uh, the living building challenge has always always been uh, all electric, and so we've I think people kind of learned some important lessons about how to do that uh, working on living buildings. Um, yeah, I mean I, I don't know I guess I guess I could go on, but I think I think well, it's uh, that's kind of what I was yeah. going to ask you is you talked about the levers for change. How do you think this having this very stringent you know, minimum set of performance and outcome criteria. How do you think that is sort of changing the industry as a whole? I think it just helps us to understand what's possible to be able to mm. see it and experience it in real and like in, in real life. Um, it helps you feel like you have more options for how you're going to design and build. Um, so it's not necessarily to say that, uh, you know, mass timber works for everybody, but living buildings, you know, are typically mass timber buildings because of the, um, the constraints that we're putting on the project teams and, and the requirements of the system around the amount of embodied carbon they can have. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things that they're, they're like, it, it really kind of just asks the question of, of, of how you can, um, how we can build in fundamentally different ways. Another way of thinking about it that your listeners may have thought about before is this idea that I learned at Google around the sort of the 10x change. Mm -hmm. The idea was basically like, you know, from Silicon Valley that it can be oftentimes just as much effort to make like a 10% uh, improvement on a, on a particular system as it is to, to, to make a 10x improvement to that system. Because when you rethink the systems fundamentally and sort of ask yourself a different scale, um, you can make that level of advancement much faster. So we're people that like the idea of kind of the 10x solution over the, the you know, the, the 1x, the 2x solution to Absolutely. a problem. 
And it's, yeah, it just opens up all sorts of things, right? When you're, I mean, we've all heard the, like that bit of anecdote, like when you really fundamentally decrease your HVAC loads in the design of a building, then you can, it, you may invest a lot more in the envelope and then you save a bunch of money on the actual mechanical systems themselves because they can be sized much smaller. So that's the kind of thing I think that you see with living buildings is just like worry, like the real aspiration getting to absolute you know, zero carbon just um, sometimes changes the game in ways that, you know, um, yeah, get us there faster. Totally. So, so what are those? Can we walk through each of those quickly? So you, you mentioned positive energy, positive carbon, you mentioned electrified, you mentioned, uh, what else did you mention? The basically something around the envelope, right? And the body yeah, carbon. Yeah. What yeah, are all these yeah, so um, minimum requirements minimum requirements well what the the other big one that people oftentimes struggle with with living buildings is that we have a program or a, a, a thing called the red list which is a list of chemicals that are typically found in building materials that are not allowed in living buildings um and you know it's things and these products uh, or sorry i should say chemicals are not products they're chemicals um they uh, are all known to be harmful to human health. Um, so well-documented, many, many peer-reviewed studies. We have a pretty elaborate system for adding chemicals to this list that involves a lot of analysis and technical committees and things. So that list um, is then operationalized in the Living Building Challenge as um, a, essentially a set of requirements to build buildings that don't, don't uh, poison people. <laughs> and, and that turns out to be really challenging, as it turns out, because mo a lot of building materials these days are made with products that um, have some uh, chemical that we know to be bad for human health. I hope that's not a surprise to any of your listeners, because we kind of hear about something in the news every day, you know, so something has been poisoning us for the past few decades that we didn't know about. So um, we take that approach specifically with the building industry to say that you need to build a building that that, that is only made with materials that that are safe. Um, and yeah, you'd be really impressed to see what people come up with and the ways that they manage to kind of um, find things that can that can kind of help to avoid that. Um, but there's also requirements around um, equity and sort of access to transit, community engagement, um, community involvement. Uh, that um, and supply chain issues that are really more around um, sort of equity impacts of buildings. So the ways that buildings have an impact on the economic livelihoods of folks that may be, you know, near them or involved in the construction of them. Um, so just really cool stories about ways that people have managed to bring uh, workforce development programs into their into the construction of their buildings to make sure that the the buildings themselves are creating good jobs and creating career paths for folks that hadn't had opportunities for really um, you know um, more high paying jobs etc. Um, so I won't go into so so not all of the imperatives are as cut and dry as like zero energy zero carbon mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but they are sort of across this. Um, yeah, they, they're they're all basically saying you have to do some good in the world in, in these different categories. So, yeah, and then that you know it's similar to lead in the way that it kind of has these different sections that talk about the different impact areas. So you know, energy and um, uh, materials, water, landscape, etc. That those are all those are all sections that we have. We call them petals, like the petals of a flower. Uh, mm. But it's basically that that idea of the different categories. And then we have, you know, similar program for products it's called the Living Product Challenge that looks at all the same sort of traits, but across the uh, diversity of decisions that you make when you design and, you know, uh, get a product out into the world as well for, for building specifically. Got it. Got it. And then for the organizations piece, you've mentioned buildings, products, and organizations. And the organizations is just, you know, everyone in the ecosystem can get certified as a company. Yeah, it's a, it's a little different. Right now what it is is um, we have a label called the Just Label that is, um, it's really more of a transparency label, but you can show your performance over time, like a nutrition label, but for your firm. 
So like okay. a lot of architecture and engineering firms, product manufacturers, folks like that, choose to basically post their just label as a way of saying, this is where, you know, this is where we are on our journey towards being a just organization. This is how diverse our staff is. These are our policies around um, the kinds of um, suppliers that we use for uh, products that we're purchasing, the, um, you know, uh, the policies that we have around um, equity and diversity in our workplace Lots of stuff, um, but it's uh, it's basically just for social impact right now. We've mm. got a few schemes around how we might be able to kind of build that out more holistically across um, environment, health, and and equity. Um, but right now, it's it's just in that area because we s- sort of saw the need for that in our industry. So it's a really nice thing. I think um, in particular, it helps people find uh, firms that are sort of interested in social impact and um that they want to work with for project teams basically um and it is something that we ask people to to do as a part of the living building challenge as well as to sort of be transparent about where you are on that journey so so all very interconnected all these programs yeah. in different ways but no, yeah I love it. yeah i'm a yeah, thank you. engineer assistance thinker and it's you guys are <laughs> definitely thinking about the system as a whole um, i mean yeah to the point that sometimes people don't entirely understand what we're talking about, but we're working on just making it a little bit easier to understand. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather it be complex for a reason and then you have to explain it later rather than be too simple. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you like a two-part question here, which is when you think about the organization over the next like five years, like where are you headed? But I also want to ask you that from the standpoint of like we've been talking about climate and decarbonization. We've been talking about technology, obviously, by nature of this audience and this community. We've also been talking about human health a lot and human health and human equity and human just happiness inside of our buildings as well, um, the experience. So where should we be like headed as an industry? And I'm, I'm making this open-ended on purpose yeah. because I want to kind of hear kind of what you think we should be thinking about most over the next several years. Yeah, I mean, the thing I'm ambitiously hoping for for us is that I think the building industry can be the first industry to show the world what it looks like for an industry from within itself to transform itself in line with a sustainable future. Um, and, and so concretely what I mean by that is that I hear from folks every day saying, Hey, we want to do something like lead, but for banking, (laughs) or we want to do something like lead, but for like fisheries or something, you know, and people, people took the, the model of how, how lead showed up in the building industry specifically, but more broadly, what the building industry has managed to do within itself to say, we're going to take the constraints of our planet, the problems that we face as societies, the ways that we are destroying our bodies accidentally through all the stuff we make. And we're going to try to, we're going to try to figure out how, how is this, how's our industry going to respond to that? How are we going to rise to those challenges? How are we going to change our practices? Who's going to do what, what laws do we need? What technologies do we need? And we're, we're really getting after it. I'm really proud of how much progress we've managed to achieve in the past few decades um, as an industry of really trying to take those issues seriously. So I think for the next five years, it needs to really feel like it's coming together and we should be able to, you know, the fashion industry should be able to look over and be like, we want to do what those guys are doing. Building industry seems to have figured it out. They've got all the right different folks working together in the right different ways and they they are changing. And what better time than in a time where a lot of us in the building industry are really fundamentally rethinking what we are here for because of the ways that work is changing and commercial real estate and cities and downtowns are changing. It's a really good time for us to ask ourselves, like, what are we here for? What do we want to stand for? How do we want all of this to work? And I don't mean just sort of like, what's the next, you know, like, how are we going to get all these heat pumps in the building? I mean, like, let's rethink the purpose or like the 
you know, pros and cons of a triple net lease. Like, is that a thing we want to keep doing or no? Because we can rethink that. We have permission to change this stuff. Um, we uh, created it, right? Or like our bosses who have since retired did. And, you know, they're not around. We get to change. And so as an industry, I think uh, that's what I'm looking forward to is, uh, is, is for all of us to feel a sense, not just that we are transforming ourselves and figuring out how this new industry is going to work, um, but for us to know that folks are watching, they want to know what the building industry is doing differently um, and how we're going to change. And, um, and we're, we're role models for that. Um, so I don't know, that may be a little bigger picture than you wanted to talk about, James, but that's kind of what I'd like to see um, is, is that type of transition. I love it because you don't know this, but the previous episode that we published before this episode comes live is talking about the current market conditions and talking about how it's a little bit doom and gloom in real estate right now. And that if you're trying to install technology in real estate, it's really not a great time for all these different oh. reasons. And I think that's a great way to reframe where we're at right now, which is one of the things that we need to sort of rethink and maybe start from scratch on what is the, what is the purpose yeah. that we're all here to do? Right. I mean, if 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 your purpose is to sell technology into commercial real estate, then yeah, it's probably a pretty depressing time. But if your purpose is to try to figure out how do we use all this incredible wealth of technology that we have at our fingertips these days to help people live happier, healthier lives in the buildings that, you know, that that are necessary parts of like, you know, um, human life then you're fine. Like shelter is going to change. The use of different buildings is going to change. But there's a lot that needs to be done and it needs to be done really fast. I mean, you've seen probably some of these articles in, in the media recently that like tech jobs aren't as great, but climate jobs are on the, are on the rise. Um, and it's because, yeah, I mean, I certainly don't hope, I hope no one feels right now like they don't have a job to do or something useful to be contributing to because it's, it's, uh, it's pretty real. We've got a lot of work to do. That's a great segue into the last second to last question I wanted to ask you, which is I was just at the AHR Expo like three weeks ago, and there's a subset of the AHR Expo, which is like the big HVAC Expo, right? Um, yeah. You know, tens of thousands, dozens of thousands of people. And um, there's a subset of that that's talking about technology and talking about controls and smart buildings. And I'd say the main theme was attracting talent um, in all of those smart buildings focused sessions. And this is a place where I feel like, you know, we were before we hit record, we talked about how the like the quote unquote green building or sustainable building industry is sort of separate, but overlapping with smart buildings. That sort of separate group is sort of way ahead in areas of diversity and DEI and really just promoting and hearing from diverse voices. And since you've been in both, I'd, I'd love to hear some reflections and sort of some, you know, maybe some advice on how the people in this industry can sort of catch up with the people in the sort of green and sustainable buildings side of the industry. It's all one industry. Yeah. We're all the buildings industry. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right, we are. But it's true. I mean, I will say um, it has been some of some of the moments that I have felt most uncomfortable um, as a woman in my career have been in rooms that were basically smart buildings rooms. You know, that that was sort of the who was there kind of um, demographic. And I have thought a lot about why that is the case. Because first of all, I think smart buildings jobs are really great jobs. And they're really great jobs for folks um, coming into the workforce underrepresented backgrounds, folks who may not have college education, all of that stuff, like we should really be a prime option for them. And by the way, we should be a prime option for people of the generation that's just kind of coming up in their early 20s now that really care about climate change and they care about health because of the pandemic and all of that. Like we should be a really great place. So why doesn't it always feel that way? I think there's a couple reasons. One is that it can feel really hierarchical and um, and that, that there can be 
this attitude. I mean, certainly I was asking for it with Comfy because we were a very disruptive technology mm-hmm. in many ways. But nonetheless, like, you know, we we need like the generations that are older, if they really want young folks in the workplace with them, if they really want folks to come up in the roles that that they took on, they need to respect where folks are coming from. They need to respect their boundaries. They need to respect their gender pronouns. They need to respect the ways that we don't really want to have our bodies commented on in a professional context at all ever. And that's not okay. Like that respect has to be there intergenerationally. And it hasn't always been in the, in the sort of building engineering and controls world. Um, and I know that it's not always purposeful, but it takes a little bit of effort sometimes to learn like what makes somebody feel comfortable. And I think that um, people are going to have to do that work to be appealing as like bosses and employers for the next generation coming up. Um, because, yeah, they they care about it. I mean, it's important to remember like a lot of generation, you know, the boomer generation you could you could take a job because you knew that it was going to provide a pension. Well, that sounds awesome. We don't have that. <laughs> like generationally, there are many many fewer pensions available to like you know, especially the Gen Z people that are you know younger than me. Like, they're not crazy when they're trying to make sure that they're going to a good job. They have sometimes just really different decisions to make, you know, than, than the, the, the folks that are getting ready to retire did when they started off in their career. So just trying to listen and be empathetic and be respectful of uh, the different perspectives folks are bringing. I think that's, that's probably the, the big thing. But, you know, I think also green building as a community has been um, maybe more diverse in part, still more on the gender side, like just a lot of women, you know, um, still pretty white, but a lot of women. Because we do like to solve sort of big systemic, systemic problems. So you get to kind of think about a lot of different stuff. But I think increasingly for smart buildings, the more that you're kind of engaging, not just with like just specifically, you know, air handling, but more diverse issues of, you know, um, uh, workplace services and ways that to, you know, otherwise bring delight to folks in buildings. Like I think it'll that'll also probably help. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful and ambitious about it. Cause I really do think like some of my, some of the best jobs that we have in even just the broader definition of like climate jobs are, are building controls for sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you just kind of giving your advice, but also just sharing your experience. I think a lot of people in this audience will feel heard and validated with your experience. It's just something that's like the elephant in the room at a lot of smart buildings conferences and conversations. Um, and I know a lot of people feel negatively about that. Um, but it's just, it's just yeah. a, kind of a breath of fresh air to hear it talked about. And also we can point to good examples where, you know, we can be more like that community, right? And what are they doing differently? And I think those conversations are super helpful. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. For sure. Let's close out with um, my my favorite last question, which is, uh, are there any books, TV shows, documentaries, podcasts, et cetera, any type of media really that has had a, a big impact on you lately? Yeah. Okay. So I think, um, to be honest, the thing that's impacting me most these days is like a small set of science fiction related TV shows, um, including oh, cool. The Expanse. The, the Expanse is the one that I would like, if you're just, if you're a person that likes to think about the future, just watch it. <laughs> it's a really okay. good show. But in particular, I think um, science fiction, there's been a lot more people writing about this recently. Like watching science fiction is really good if you need, first of all, like a little bit of a sense of, I don't know, maybe dealing with your climate anxiety, if that's a thing that you have, um, because the world of science fiction authors, like people really try to think, okay, what is it going to look like in the future? And I think that that helps us imagine how we want to be useful today. Um, But it also just kind of like is a mind blowing experience of like trying to do the work of envisioning something that hasn't yet come to pass. Um, totally. And that's something I've always believed is pretty important. Like, you know, if, if you, 
I think this is true of both smart buildings and of, you know, sustainable buildings um, and, and all of their intersections. The more we can envision the future that we're trying to create, the better we will be able to articulate it today and make it happen. And so science fiction can kind of like get all of those you know, like creative juices flowing. Um, plus it's like super fun and, you know, um, entertaining. And sometimes the acting is just horrible. And, you know, like the monsters are really bizarre and it's it's a nice fun way, but it's also sort of like, a, um, I don't know, a stimulating way of kind of imagining our future. Brilliant. The Expanse. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes and I'll definitely check it out soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad we finally made made time for this. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is, this is yeah, a ton of fun. And I'm just so appreciative of the work that you're doing to bring all these ideas together. So thank you for doing it. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.